0: This episode of the Filmmaker Mixer Podcast is sponsored by Reeds Cleaners in Austin, Texas, dedicated to quality and service. Welcome to the Filmmaker Mixer Podcast. My name's Andrew, and I'm joined here with Jeff. And today we have a great episode. We invited filmmaker Stacia Crawford on, and we covered a great number of topics, and she was just a wealth of information.
1: Yeah, Stacia's been a friend of mine for a long time, and she's done a lot in the industry, acting and producing and writing and directing. And um, she talks about lingo in the industry. She talks about her projects that she's had on Hulu, Netflix, and uh, and also the process of shooting out an entire location for a TV series in just a couple of days. So it's a lot of fun. She's got a lot of great information. So tonight we have a really uh, special guest. It's a friend of mine, a friend I've had for, gosh, a long number of years. I've met this, met this young lady years ago. We've stayed friends uh, ever since. Um, and I've seen her go from an actor and writer to a producer to a director. And uh, she's had a, a really great career. And she's my good friend, Stacia Crawford. How are you, Stacia?
2: I'm great. Thanks for having me, guys.
1: No, happy to happy to have you on. I don't know if you remember, but we met years ago. You had a short film called Back to One. Uh-huh. And it was Wait. on the festival circuit. And I had a feature called Master of the Game, which was on the festival circuit. And we kept in, kept ending up at the same festivals. And I kept seeing your um, co-actor, uh, uh, Ray, mm-hmm. and we just kept running into each other. And finally, he's he's like, do I know you? And I'm like, do I know you? <laughs> and it's like, oh, we keep seeing each other at these festivals. And so, Ray introduced me to you, and that's how we met years ago, and we've been friends ever since. But uh,
2: Kismet, uh, hey, Ray, yes, we're happy I believe to have that, you on. And thank you. I believe there was a festival that I wasn't at that you guys ended up like going... Um, like tubing or something, you guys end up having a really good time. And I was like, Oh man, I missed that one. <laughs> yeah. There, uh, you know,
1: some of those festivals are great fun. They really, yeah. <laughs> really have a lot of yeah. fun. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> anyway. So a couple of questions I have now, one question I have, since you started as an actor and a writer and have moved into, uh, you know, producing and directing and everything else. I'm curious, did you, were you acting as a child? Did you get into acting as a young kid and just stuck with it? How did how did you get the bug?
2: Yeah, so I like to say that I came out of the womb knowing exactly what I wanted to do, um, which is rare. I mean, I can remember, you know, being a super small child and um, always just knowing exactly I wanted. I really wanted to be a performer. So I wanted to be an actor more than anything. And then um, writing just came pretty naturally to me, young, as a young child. Um, so for me, there was never, ever a... Um, what am I going to do? You know, I just, I just always knew. Um, and I had always wanted to direct. However, I felt like I needed a lot of schooling. Um, and by schooling, I mean life experiences (laughs) on the set and off the set prior to directing. And, um, I don't, I don't know how I knew that. That was just kind of like my God voice inside. Um, so I started, acting first and did years and years and years of acting in New York city and Los Angeles. Um, and then I started producing probably around the same time that we met, like around 2002, something like that. Um, and I loved it. I loved it. It was, um, it was a natural progression for me. Um, but then after a while I, I, to be honest, I got burned out, and I, and I didn't love it so much anymore i felt like i had you know 50 grown children you know and um and i uh do you want me to tell you how i got into directing sure absolutely okay so i was working for a, a company i was producing for um i was an independent producer but i had a few films with more vista and um one of one of my uh, executives at the company had asked me what i wanted to do and I just said, you know, I, ultimately I want to direct, but I'm not quite sure if I'm there yet. And at this point, I had been producing for a few years. And unbeknownst to me, my best friend at the time was a DP. His name is Adrian Correa. Um, he's a big DP now. He had talked to them as well on the side and said, um, you know, Stacey, really is a director. You know, she really is this emotional divining rod. And so my my direct report at the studio came to me and said you know if you really want to direct then do it you know uh, direct a short film give it to me and i'll see what i can do so i used my own money and i went out and i wrote and produced and directed i ended up starring in it too i that was a different story i was not meant to star in it (laughs) um but um did a short film within a few months used my own money and um brought it to them and um and I think they were impressed not only with the quality, but also the fact that I actually did it. You know, I put my actions behind my words. And so many people um, don't, you know, in our industry. And um, they gave me a film. And it, my first film ended up on Netflix as a director. My second film ended up on Lifetime. And then I was
1: off to the races. Is the uh, short available for people to see?
2: Um, it is not. <laughs> I actually pulled it down. um it was yeah it i never completely completely finished it um but i had given them a a rough enough copy that they got a sense of my style and of course they knew me as a producer right Right. you know i had done five or six films with them as a producer they knew i was a performer so this was really to um just to make sure that i had the directing chops and um, and they believed in me and they gave me a shot and yeah it's incredible and i think i've done gosh I think I've done ten movies with that company, ten or eleven, as producer and/or director.
0: Backtracking a little, too. Um, you said you grew up being just creative. Were you raised in a creative household, Were your parents artists of any kind in the industry, or was it just kind of you taking a different path?
2: Uh, well, my parents were cops, <laughs> uh, which is interesting. Um, so my my mother's side of the family is all incredibly creative. The Crawfords are i mean just, just so creative and my mom was a dancer on broadway for a long time but by the time she got married and had kids she had left that world and i think you know they were always very in- encouraging but kind of from a distance you know not not a stage mom or anything like that but very um, encouraging to explore um it, it was in our hearts you know whether it was whatever it was as children um But but yeah, so my dad was a cop and um, I did go to school for criminology and um, specifically to be a CSI. But I I, I didn't do anything with that other than I can play a cop on TV. (laughs) Um,
0: Yeah, I mean, one way me and Jeff bonded early on when we first met was that. Uh, Both of us grew up in the same small farm town and we grew up kind of just making homemade movies with uh, our friends, whether it be Jeff was more on film. I was on digital uh, cameras, of course. But were you known for like that in high school, like the superlative, like most likely to be famous
2: uh, around that age? No, I mean, um, we I did a lot of competing with um, what was called back then, like a speech club. Oh, where okay. there was a lot of acting, a lot of uh, performance, um, and per- performance speaking. I don't even know if they they do that in schools anymore. So we did travel around with my high school and competed against other schools. But I would say it was more like theater. I was raised in South Florida, so there wasn't really a lot going on back then.
1: Um, so, so and- what was your category in speech? I was I was in speech when I was in high school. What what did you do?
2: Um. So do you remember, like, it was, I think it was called, like, Duo Interpretation, where two people... Right, so cool. right, right, right,
1: right, right. Do you remember
2: that? Or two, yep. two people, you'd stand side by side. There's all these rules You could have your script in front of you, but you, you had to look down at it a couple of times, but you couldn't... You had to turn the pages at the exact same time, and the two actors had to stand side by side and not face each other, but they had to act out a scene as though they were in front of each other.
1: Right, right. Yeah, I remember yeah. that. That was... Uh, I, I did some of that, and I also did... Uh, verse so if you ever want to hear some robert frost you just call me up
2: <laughs>
1: another question i have you know, being a, a working actor writer going to producer going to director i'm curious was it, it's it's a little different learning curve than studying one uh, discipline and i'm curious how as a director it affected you as a producer and as an i'm, I'm sorry as an actor how did it affect you as a producer how did an actor and a producer affect you as a director? What's the mm. influence of the of one uh, discipline? How did it affect your new disciplines?
2: That's a great question. Um, so when I made the jump to producing, it made me a better actor because I understood the, uh, the auditioning process better. So being on the other side of the table and being in those rooms where we make decisions, I understood that. As an actor, we're not chosen necessarily because of our talent. Like, there's so many other things that go along in that decision. And basically, if if you're an actor and you're getting to, to the point where producers are actually calling you into the room, everybody's great. Like, you know, acting across the board is great. It's just whether or not you're the right fit for that part. whether What your essence is. What your essence, um, if it matches the character. And,
1: and, and probably how does it depending on the script how does it match the other actors you know they might correct. be looking for the right ensemble
2: correct oh yeah you might look too much like the lead you might not look enough like the lead you might be too short to talk. you know there's so many diff- different voices in that room so it really made me start to enjoy the audition process more because i i understood that i it was more fun you know i could just go in and do the best do the best to my ability have fun with it and And not really focus on the outcome, because it wasn't it wasn't personal if that makes sense,
1: right. Um, right, right.
2: so So I feel like that producing made me a better actor, but also to um you know, I always I, I like to say uh, listening is the the best quality to bring to set. You know, obviously, come prepared and come with a great attitude, but listen, listen to your to your scene partners listen to your director listen to the producers like listen to what people are saying and 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 try to you know incorporate yourself into that world in a gentle way right um so it it really made me producing really made me understand that it's not just about the actors it's not just about my two lines you know there's it's just such a there's so much more, and it's such a, um, a canvas for um, multiple people to, to really work together, if that makes sense.
1: Well, it's so, you know, it's a collaborative art, for sure.
2: Yes, yes. Um, and so that was for the acting. And then as a director, um, I really feel I, I am an actor's director through and through. And you can talk to, you know, you can ask many of the actors that I've worked with, and I, I do believe that they would say the same. Um, But I also have the production side. So I know how to break down a script. I know the budgets, you know, I can walk into uh, a location and say, okay, if we actually turn this into two different sets, so we save money here, then what we can do is we can, you know, put the money towards a techno crane there. You know, the numbers are in my head. So I understand what it means to keep, how important it is to keep a film on time and on budget. Um, but I can incorporate those numbers into the creative side by my compromising. And I don't mean well, that it, in a bad way.
1: Well, it becomes another tool.
2: So when when I, you know, as a director, part of my job is to ask the producer for whatever I want, right? But I understand when I ask for a crane I say no. I understand why no. You know, <laughs> but if I ask for, you know, something, you know, a gym for a half a day, then me, you know, it's at one point maybe I can go, well. Are you sure we can't afford that? You know, or whatever it is.
0: Is there like a certain department you kind of were drawn to when you first stepped behind the camera, either as a producer or director, that you didn't think you would be drawn to? Whether it be, you know, props or set decoration, for example.
2: Well, I'm always amazed at what a production designer can do with an empty room. Like it, it to this day, you know, every every movie that I'm on or every project I'm on, it's um the production designer will try to explain to me what it's going to look like. And I'll say, oh, okay, great, great. And then I'll walk in and be like, oh my God, this is just, it's just far, you know, surpasses my ability to create a a room like that. Um, But I think also scoring, you know, um, the music composition is so precise. And it really, in in my opinion, music can make or break a film. Or at least a scene in a film. Um, So, really respecting that process too, the whole post process is so fascinating to me.
0: Was there like a certain producer or director you worked with while you were acting that when you decided to step behind a camera, maybe they were one of the reasons, uh, one of the people that inspired you to? Or was it just more of a progression of your career?
2: Definitely progression. I think Adrian Correa, as I've mentioned before, he's amazing. He shot The Flight Attendant. Glow and I mean he's done a, a ton of stuff. Um, but also Joe Menendez uh, was a director that I worked with when I was a producer. And so um I like we, we still stay in 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 close contact. And um, I like to call him my mentor. Um so he's someone I, I highly admire and look up to. Um he was all Kung True for the last three seasons. Um and then I have another close friend named Bob Mead, who's a a, a very well known editor. Um, who and these are people in my life that I can go to and say, you know, we have real friendships, so I can ask opinions or I can, and they'll tell me, you know, they'll tell me what they think or what they feel, and it doesn't always, you know, I may I may take their advice, I may not, but there are people that are um, that I've known for you know number of years that I. Admire, respect, and there's also um, this really solid friendship that we can be very, very free with each other insofar as information. And there's no like weird competition or, you know, so how sometimes Hollywood can be like that.
1: Well, um, that's one of the things I noticed when I started, um, you know, when I got to a certain point in in my career working with, you know, talented writers and, and directors and things. You hit a point where you're still passionate about it, but you're able to let it go. For example, if something doesn't work, you've, really, you've got this great idea for a story. And if it doesn't serve the plot, you just say, okay, dump but we'll use it for something else. And you move on. You don't get attached. And sure. I think when you have relationships with people who are the same way and they can be honest about the work and what works and what doesn't, it just helps you collaborate and be a better, you know, whatever it is, writer, director, actor
2: agreed agreed and I, and I find that i don't often of course there's some major exceptions but i don't often enjoy movies that are like ri- written directed produced you know when when one person is doing everything because it doesn't feel collaborative right and it's so nice to go into an edit room and have somebody that you know and trust say "Hmm, i love that but have you ever thought about this you know well, and so many times i'm like oh my gosh i would never have thought of that and it you know, just makes it so much better.
1: <laughs> well, that's that's the thing that I learned. I, you know, writing with Andrew and and writing with my other uh, another writer I work with, Alvaro Rodriguez. You know, we, you, you know, oh, you,
2: bro. Yeah, yeah, great you know. guy, good guy. So, yes.
1: You know, a writer can create one thing. A second writer can create another thing, and then the writer, two writers together, can create this new thing, which mm-hmm. you wouldn't necessarily do on your own. So I I think. The same thing is probably true you know with what you're talking about working with you know letting the dp come in and give input and and maybe take the brush strokes that you have in your head and create something a little bit more than what you had in your head and and that's what makes it fun 100% and
2: i often um like i come to set i'm very prepared but i'm also prepared to pivot so you know i come to set knowing exactly what i want but i leave enough room on the stage for other people to bring their brilliance So I will say to the DP, you know, I would like this, this, and this. And then oftentimes the DP will say, no problem. But if we do this and this, then what we can do is, you know, minimize this and this and this. And it's technical stuff that I would, I just, I'm not well versed in, right? Or a lot of times um, provided, uh, most of the films that I work on are are on the lower budget end. So we are really rushing against the clock to make our day. But a lot of times I will let the actors do a take however way they want it. You know, like as long as I get what I need, then I'll say, you know, the last take, do whatever you want. Do what feels good. And sometimes we actually use that take, you know, sometimes not, but, um, you know, allowing people to bring their their genius um, to the collaborative process. But that doesn't mean that... um, I mean, I'm still the director. I still know, I still have a very clear vision of what I want going into it. I just allow people
1: to contribute. Well, it's a good way to build trust with your with your crew.
2: Yeah.
0: What do you think would be the biggest difference between you as a director on your first film versus your most recent film? And we could just do projects maybe instead in case it's television, for example.
2: Right. Oh, gosh, these are great questions, guys. So my first film, it was called Hidden in Plain Sight. It was on Netflix. Um, it is such a precious, precious project for me because every single moment of every day, I was just euphoric. You know, I was I was living my dream. Um, but there was so much technically that I didn't know. I had an amazing DP, Chris Carrillo, who um who had many more years under his belt. Um, you know, as a DP than I had as a director, obviously. Um, so we worked really, really well together. But I think. Um, and this is going to sound trivial, but I didn't know how, I didn't know how important the insert shots were, you know, all those extreme close-ups and then, you know, the hand picking up Mm -hmm. the piece of paper or, and now I spend a lot of time doing those, you know, second unit stuff or those, I call them inserts or just, you know, the hand picking up the phone or, um, because oftentimes you're... I don't care how good you are or how much time and money you have, there'll be something that you've missed and you won't understand that you've missed it until you're in the edit. So having that little cohesive tissue piece um, is really important. Um, and then also I think just having each project that we do, we build a confidence, right? And, that, and I don't mean ego. I just mean we become more um, just more comfortable in our skin as storytellers.
0: Yeah. Do you feel like, you know, you're a director that only needs a few takes to get what they want, opposed to maybe your first project? You were doing 15, 20 takes a scene, or is it more just like where you're talking about precision in terms of what you're looking for, how you're going to edit around it, for example?
2: So I'm a, I'm a director. who usually lead us two or three takes, and that's always been my um,
0: oh, fallback. Okay.
2: But I'm also an actor, so I know I, I expect actors to come to set prepared. You know, and I, and I speak to the actors ahead of time. I let them know, you know what my process is. I try to find out what their process is. And as a director, my job is to understand, without even talking to them about it, to, to understand by watching them, studying them, what, ha, how best to bring out the best of them. And that's my job. Um, so, but I kind of feel like if you can't get it in two or three takes, unless there's a technical issue, of course, Mm -hmm. that, you know, that happens, but performance wise, if you can't get it in two or three takes, then I probably shouldn't have chosen you.
1: I see. And and there, and there are some actors who their first take is always the best. And there are some actors who their last take is always the best. It's it's an interesting thing to figure out.
2: Yeah. And you figure it out within like two days. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which actor needs to go last on coverage or gets tired. Yep. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. And, you know, as a younger director, you know, still finding my way, I'd be curious to know, just kind of using your two most recent projects. I know your Christmas movie, A Unicorn for Christmas, is now on Hulu and Tubi for audiences to find, as well as The Secret Life of Amy Benson, which you directed two seasons of for Passionflix is there a big difference between directing film and television or maybe surprisingly very similar? I'm sure the uh, pre-production process is a little little bit different, but as a director on a day, maybe.
2: A little bit. I mean, I find that there's differences in every project that I do. Um, And really a lot has to do with the content. You know, on Unicorn for Christmas, I was on a farm with animals and kids. You know, (laughs) in The Secret Life of Amy Benson, it's a a romance thriller, Um, mystery. Um... So, and and Amy Benson, this is that's my first um voyage into streaming television. Um so I don't really I've never done episodic yet. I haven't done episodic uh, truly. Um so I I'm guessing there would be a big difference, but because I haven't experienced that, I um I I honestly don't know. As far as Amy Benson, um we did well, we 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 did block shooting, which was really difficult. Two seasons of block shooting, trying to figure out where the characters were <laughs> in in their story. You know, as we as we were shooting out locations, um, but it, I think it was very in this particular experience. It was very similar to film for me.
1: Can Can you explain block shooting just for for people who may not be familiar with it?
2: Oh, sure. So um let's just say we have um a house that we have that we see in, in three episodes and then we see it again further in, in the season or in, in subsequent seasons. We know that we're gonna be filming at that house only for two days. So we actually film every single scene in that house all at once. So it could be four years in the future, story-wise, but really it's an hour later. Um, And then oftentimes we shoot, we block shoot actual scenes, which means every time you move the camera, it's called a different setup. And every time you move the camera, you have to change the lighting. So much changes and it takes, you know, 20, 30, 45 minutes to get ready for, for that setup. So if we know, okay, we've got three scenes that we have to shoot towards the stairwell, we will film all three scenes. Everyone's coverage towards the stairwell so that we don't have to keep moving the camera around and wasting precious time. Um, it's the most difficult on the actors because they're learning lines out of order, out of sequence. Um, sometimes we have to jump ahead. Makeup will change. Wardrobe indefinitely will, will, change. Um, undoubtedly it's, it's will like, change. It
1: sounds like a, uh, an important, um, an extra important job for your script supervisor to keep everything, you know, keep the emotions Uh, the continuity for for the emotion of the scene and the costumes and all of that.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I don't really, you know, I rely on myself and the actress for the emotion, but for the physicality, like what shoes they're wearing or, I mean, hairstyles. Oh my gosh. Especially women with hairstyles, you know, trying to remember where exactly they were, or you know, jewelry, you know, little things that, Sometimes you go, oh, darn, I just, I did a whole scene and she has the wrong earrings in, you know, and, and sometimes you just try to see if it'll squeak by and know what this is. And sometimes you have to reshoot. So, um, it can, yes, it can be very tedious on everybody, but at the, it does save precious time at the end of the day. So most people on set will prefer to block shoot. It doesn't happen often. I would say it happens at least once a project for me. Um, but insofar as Amy Benson, because we were shooting multiple episodes and multiple seasons with within say similar locations, it, it just wasn't it just was necessary.
1: So I did want to say that your Christmas Christmas movie, A Unicorn for Christmas, it got a really great recommendation in Entertainment Weekly.
2: Yeah, it's which is so awesome. Exciting. So that movie, um, you know, it's just a precious kids movie. There's no big hijinks. There's no big drama. It's just a feel good. You know, it's about kids who believe in magic and believe in Christmas. And um and that was it was really a labor of love for me and the for the rest of the filmmakers. And it it stars Abby James Witherspoon, who is um Reese's niece. And um and she's just so talented. I mean she was so such a delight to work with. And I've worked with her a few times. Um, so did you know, <laughs> so in the post-process, it took a little bit longer when you're dealing with animals and C, um, I call it CGI still, but VFX, um, sometimes the post-process takes a little bit longer than anticipated. So we missed the window for 2021 t- for it to be premiered. And it felt like forever for it to come out this year, but, um, As with most things, timing was impeccable. And we ended up having a a big premiere. Chuck Wicks was one of the leads in the movie. He's a country singer. And we ended up having a big premiere at his place in Nashville. And we invited so many kids. And, you know, a couple hundred people came. And it was just the most amazing um, premiere. Because it was just filled with kids and love and magic. But the year that I had to wait to get there you know it was really difficult it was really difficult because i wanted to share it with the world but now it's it's out there and it's just a really sweet sweet christmas movie
1: and and so on movie on on like that film or amy benson are you strictly brought on as a director and as a director do you have any input on the story or the writing at all do you adjust things do you dial things in how does that work
2: so it really just depends on the project um I, with certain producers, I come on, I can do, um, like a, it's not really a page one rewrite, but it's very heavily handed, um, you know, the things I change are mostly to due to environment, you know, if it's written in a certain state or a certain time of year, we have to film in a different state, different time of year, I, you know, I will help contribute to writing the environment or changing, you know, certain characters based on who we cast, um, and then but but it really just depends some some writers are on for the whole run of show um for amy Benson, we had amazing writers uh, i did not touch any of that um you know and you know some are some are adaptations from books where we have to be strict with some are more original screenplays so it really does vary from from script to script but so far i've just been um a, a director for hire i haven't really truly directed anything that i've written you know from inception yet
1: and one of the questions i get a lot and and i'd be curious to hear what you say what you have to say do you get most of your work from your manager or your agent or do you get most of your work from relationships or is it a combination
2: oh man i pound the pavement i i mean i spent years relentless just meeting everyone and taking generals um I find in this business, it's, it's mostly, it's 80% word of mouth. And when you do, a, you know, you're only as good as your last job. So when you do a really good job and you treat people well and you, you host an environment where the cast and crew are being well treated and you're doing quality work as far as like storytelling, um, it, it goes a long way. So I I would say the majority of my work comes from, from people I've worked with before, the word of mouth. Um, I do have a manager. I just signed with him maybe a year ago and he um, he's amazing. So he definitely um, has opened doors for me, um, whether it's just getting in general, which are important, by the way. So, you know, even though you do a general, you might not, that person might not hire you for years, if ever, but it, it is still. Um,
1: it's like my manager says, it's you're, you're building a fan base. You're building people who. May not have a project for you now, but if you build a relationship with them, then down the road you might. And just again, for people who might be new to the industry, explain what a general is.
2: Hmm. So a general is just um, it's just a general meet and greet. It's just like a, the equivalent of having coffee. Hey, what are you up to? What are you doing? What are your interests? What are your you know? Uh, oh, we have this person in common. How did you like working with that person? Um, so it's just it's, it's, it's
1: the water bottle the the water bottle tour.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, and, you know, oftentimes those will end really, you know, I listen to your script, and, you know, you you read the script, and I'm sure, you, you know, you're you're at this point in your career as well, where, um, you know, you turned out stuff, too, because it just doesn't feel right. You know, it doesn't feel right either in your schedule or within the budget or within your soul. Um, so, I... But sometimes like I'm definitely turning down projects and then that writer or that producer will hit me back up with a different one. And I will have loved that one. You know? So it's just a matter of um, Yeah. It's just like like going and having coffee and seeing what what are you up to? What are you up to?
0: <laughs> yeah. And one question I love to ask people, especially someone like yourself who probably spends a lot of time in the industry is what's your favorite thing to do outside? of work and anything film whether it be the first thing you're looking forward to after a long shoot in production or maybe just simply favorite weekend things to do
2: sleep <laughs> i mean people it's funny because you know i'll say you know we're on set 15 hours a day and they'll say oh well do you i mean how many hours really eight nine i'm like no 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 15 <laughs> you know like by you know we shoot 12 and a half and by the time you get there it's an hour you know drive and you stay afterwards like it's it's like um so it takes me like two to three weeks to kind of really get back into my normal life after a film because you put your everything into it your heart soul everything um but so when i'm not on set um you know I, i'm pretty laid back i i like to be with my family and my boyfriend and you know i go course spec riding and um and i'm a huge animal lover so dogs um, I do like to travel. I mean, I think most people do, but, and Jeff, you probably get this as well. Even when you're in between projects, you're still working. You're still reading yeah, scripts. You're still in post. You're still, you know, having meetings for something that may not happen until next year. So even in well, our
1: downtime, we're working. And if you're doing something you really love, you, you are kind of working all the time.
2: Sure. Sure. And a lot of times I'm not contracted through a post, but I stay on. If, as long as I don't have anything else to go to, I'll stay on and sure, I'll sit in color for 10 hours a day. You know, because I <laughs> love it.
0: So we have a little segment we like to do at the end. Our producer, Jeff Weber, just likes to leave random questions to uh, just general questions, not uh, guest specific. Was there a project that you could have done that you said no to or didn't work out for what it, or they said no to you or whatever it was that you really, really think about a lot and you wish that you were a part of.
2: Mm. That's a good question. Um I know I don't want to name specifics, but I know that um I was asked to do a very big uh uh to potentially produce a very big uh movie and it was coinciding with my first directorial debut on a much smaller film and that was a little i had to think about that long and hard because i didn't want to produce anymore but it was a proven quantity it was a lot of money it was probably it turned into be a trilogy um and i really went with my heart and chose to stay on as director on a much much smaller project um, so I don't. I think I, I. still think I made the right decision because directing is what I, I. I truly feel like I was, that I'm meant to be doing. Um. But but that's probably that's the only thing that comes to mind right now. So there's no regrets. But there there was definitely a moment of, huh, well this could open so many doors and this could put you know, some some, you know money in the bank. Mm-hmm. But I don't think it was regret.
1: Well, what's uh, what's next? What's uh, coming up next in your in your career? Anything fun coming down the pike?
2: I, I have a very I can't really you know NDAs and stuff. We can't really talk about it, but I do have a fun Christmas, a super fun Christmas one that I'm that we're we're putting together. Um, probably going to be March April. We're still finalizing all of that, and I have some exciting meetings coming up. So I don't have anything. Um, Set in stone right now, but that's what's that's the beauty about this business, right? We like we could hang up, and all of us could get a call for a, <laughs> for a, a project. Exactly. Uh, we just never exactly. know. We just never
1: know. Well, uh, thanks again for coming on and being on the show. um You know, I, we've known each other for so long. It's it's just great to see your career just bloom and blossom and go crazy like it's going. So. Uh, and next time you're in town, we'll definitely have to uh, yeah. Have well, what better? Why don't
2: why don't we just why don't we figure out a TV series or an anthology that we can actually direct together? <laughs> that sounds like a great idea. <laughs> yeah, let's put it out there.
0: But yeah, it was great having you on. Uh, I'm not sure if you're really big into social media, but is there anywhere username that people could find you on on any platforms?
2: Yes, Instagram, Stacia Crawford, um, that's probably the one I'm on, on the most. I am on Facebook. Um, I do have a Twitter account, but I'm rarely on it. Um, and I don't even i don't even know. I think it's Stacia underscore, underscore Crawford, but I'm not, I'm not quite sure.
0: Feel free to uh, go follow her on there. And yeah, thanks for uh, joining us today.
2: Oh, thanks for having me, guys. You take care.
1: Thank you for listening to Filmmaker Mixer, a podcast created and hosted by filmmakers Jeff Stolen and Andrew Lamping. Our producer is Jeff Weber. Our theme song was created by Stephen D. Bennett. Make sure to follow or subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to us on and stay tuned for future episodes.